Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Crossroads. Again, my name's Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here at Crossroads, and it's so good to have you guys here with us today. I want to say welcome to those of you joining us online. Welcome to those of you at our West Campus. We are so glad that you are here with us today. Now, in case you guys um, were maybe sleeping since Tuesday, I want to let you guys know it's 2019 now, okay? Anybody, is that news to anybody? Probably not. But we want to take a minute here up front to celebrate some of what God did in 2018, as well as thank you, our church body, for your generosity. Now, in the month of December, we set forward a giving goal for the month of $750,000. And after this last weekend, that number was blown out of the waters. Your congregation gave over $982,000 over the month. Thank you all so much for your generosity and the generosity of our church, of you all as our congregation was seen in more than just financial giving over the last few months. We were able to send 154 boxes of school supplies to Glenwood Leadership Academy and to the Potter's Wheel. We were able to um, actually help out 88 families at the Glenwood Leadership Academy through our partnership with them at Affordable Christmas, as well as provide some funds for them for some supplemental education programs. In addition to that, we were able to provide some toys for the Evansville Christian Life Center's uh, Christmas toy drive, as well as provide some toys for the Pottersville families that participate in the Baby Basics program. On top of that, we were able to bless 28 of our global partners and our mission partners around the world with Christmas gifts through our presents for partners. It was an incredible year in 2018 as we celebrated 164 baptisms and 154 of you that became members. We want to celebrate that today because that is awesome. Now, as we enter 2019, I'm going to say something that you probably expected and that every other church in America is hearing today as well. And that is that I am even more excited about what God is going to do in 2019. But it's true because we are going to have the opportunity to join in what God has called us as a congregation to do in new ways this year. And I think it's going to be exciting for all of us as we see God launch us forward into this mission that he has for us. Now, if you guys weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to our sermon from our kids pastor, Jacob Stewart, who did an awesome job kicking off our series, uh, speaking out of Luke chapter nine. It was a great way to lay a foundation for uh, just this series as we get ready to go. Now, as we get going, I've got a question for you guys. Have you guys ever been put into a situation or been given a task where you felt completely overwhelmed and maybe totally inadequate for what you were being asked to do? Maybe for you, you're a teacher and it was the first day that you went in as a student teacher and they were like, okay, we're grading you today. And you're like, I'm not ready for this, right? Maybe it was the first time that they put you in a classroom and they left and there was no other adult in the room and you realized, wait a minute, I'm responsible for these kids now. I'm the adult. (laughs) 
For me, I interned at Crossroads back in 2012, and I started my internship in January, and I had just graduated college the month before. Now, I interned in kids' ministry, and up to that point, I had never actually worked with elementary-age kids, all right? Outside of my nieces and nephews, had no experience at all, and was convinced up to that point that, that the youngest kid I would ever work with would be a freshman in high school, all right? But this was the year-long internship that, that lined up. And after meeting with the team, I got really excited about potentially working with kids. So I came here and started working with the kids. And two months in, all right, eight weeks into Andrew's tenure and kids' ministry, the seven people that were on staff that work in kids' ministry went to a kids' ministry conference in San Diego and left this guy back here in charge, all right? It was a little bit overwhelming as I look back. We had an after-school program, and we still do on Wednesdays, called Light Company. And at that point, we had about 300 kids coming each week. And as we got ready for that day, I was freaking out, all right? I didn't really know what I was going to do. At that point, I had never taught more than 10 first through fifth graders in the same room. And so the thought of standing in front of 300, I was terrified. But somehow, as I, I look back, the day kind of feels like an out-of-body experience where I just kind of like floated through the day and things got done. But we made it through because we had some awesome volunteers. But as I look back on that day, I remember feeling totally inadequate for what I was being asked to do. I remember having fear of completely failing and dropping the ball. I remember having fear of losing a kid and that being on me that time. I remember also just having a deep anxiety like I don't normally experience. It was an overwhelming time. Now, on top of all of those feelings, I also had a deep sense of envy that the rest of the team was sitting in San Diego while I was back here freaking out, right? Have you guys ever had a time like that? A situation where you felt totally inadequate? Maybe you're in the medical field and it was the first time that you were charged with making a decision that you knew could alter someone else's life and you were the one who had to make the call. Maybe for you, it was whenever you brought your first child home and you know, you'd been in the hospital for two or three days and then they kick you out and say, it's all yours now. I mean, I was talking to Bill Altman about this earlier this week. He's one of our pastors here and he brought up a great point. How crazy is it that the only thing they really check when they send you home from the hospital is whether or not you have the right car seat? Is that like all there is to parenting, right? I mean, in order to get my driver's license, I had to take a written test. I had to drive around with an experienced driver for six months. And then I had to take like a driven test to make sure I knew what I was doing. But all I had to do to take my son home from the hospital was show up with the right car seat, all right? I think we need to work on that and see if we can get like an experienced parent for six months to train us, right? <laughs> How do you do this with no sleep? But it's one of those feelings where you just feel overwhelmed and inadequate. Maybe for you, you're a guy in here and it was a time whenever your spouse or, or maybe it was your um, mother or someone, they sent you to the grocery store with a grocery list and you were feeling confident until you got into the aisle with the spices and then you were like, what is this, okay? I can't find this, this doesn't exist here. You feel overwhelmed, you feel inadequate, you feel that feeling of fear and anxiety. And today we are going to look at a passage from Luke 10 where I think the disciples were feeling this. 
I think as Jesus came to them, they were feeling completely inadequate. They were feeling not just inadequate, but, but they were, had this fear of not knowing what was going to happen. And I think they probably had some anxiety as well as they entered into this mission that Jesus had for them. Now, up front, if you're here today and, and you are a follower of Jesus, I want to let you know this passage today that we're looking at really is speaking directly to you. This is Jesus talking to his followers. And it's easy for us sometimes to think whenever we see a passage like this, that this is for someone else. What I want to challenge you with today is to look at this message. And I hope the thing that you see in Jesus's words to his followers is I hope you begin to see the joy and the confidence that you can have as you live your life in this world as a representative of Jesus. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're just here today because you're trying to figure out why on earth we gather each week, or you're here because a spouse, significant other, or parent said, hey, you're coming with me. I want to let you know I'm glad you're here, even if that's the case. I want to let you know that I recognize up front that this message really is more directed to believers, and it's because that's who Jesus was talking to here. But I hope that what you see in this message today is God's deep heart for you to come to know him. I hope as you see what Jesus was charging his followers to do as he sent them out into the world, I hope you see just how much God desires for you to experience the joy of of coming to know him in this life and being secured of, of life forever. Because it's an incredible hope that we see here. Now, like Jacob told us last week, the first eight chapters of the book of Luke began to get us to ask this question, who is Jesus? And last week, Jesus, or Jacob answered that question that, that Jesus is God's Messiah, which means that he is the fulfillment of all that, that God had promised to do throughout all of history. And he was one that was coming to ultimately rescue not just the nation of Israel, but people from all nations. Now, right after Jesus told his followers that, he told them a couple of things that kind of caught him off guard. He said, hey, I'm going to go suffer now. Hey, I'm going to go die. Hey, there is a cross before me. And and that kind of marks a turning point in the book of Luke. This turning point is found in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Luke tells us this. He says, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. Now that's significant for us because Jesus knew at this point and his followers were coming to learn as well that what awaited him in Jerusalem was a cross. What awaited him was suffering. So this ne- the next 15 chapters, the remainder of the book of Luke, it's all about Jesus's kind of last walk as he was headed to the cross. Throughout this, we learn a lot about the core pieces of why Jesus came. We learn a lot about what Jesus did and taught and ultimately what it looks like for us to follow him. This was setting a foundation for him sending out his disciples on mission. And here's what we see in Luke chapter 10, verse one. It says this, it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. 
after this refers to after he had set his face to go to Jerusalem, after he had talked to his followers more about what it looked like to follow him. It was after, at the beginning of Luke 9, he had sent out his 12 followers that are a little bit more well-known. You know, you got like Peter and John, and if you have a friend named Peter or John, it's probably because those guys are pretty well-known throughout the world because Christianity expanded. So you had those 12 really well-known guys that were sent out, but now Jesus sends out 72 others, and we never really even see their names. You see, this is something that's a pattern of God throughout all of history. Our God is a God who is a sending God. He is one who sends his people out into the world. We see this from the beginning of the story as God calls Abraham to himself and then sends him to a land he had never been to before. We see this as God calls a guy named Moses to himself and sends him to a land called Egypt where he was actually running away from because he killed a guy there. And God sends him back there because God is ascending God. This is the God who called one of his prophets, a guy named Jonah, to himself and then sent him to go to his enemies to share the the news about what God was about to do. And even when Jonah ran the opposite direction, God grabbed him again and sent him back to to his enemies. The sending God is the God who sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world to rescue us, to allow us to experience real life now and life forever. And the sending God is the God who now sends his church into the world today. He sends us out to be his representatives like he has done throughout all of history. Now here we see that Jesus sent his followers out in pairs. And I love this picture because it reminds us that we weren't created to do this mission that God calls us to on our own. We weren't created to to go out on our own and just build this thing by ourselves, but we were to go out in groups and actually see God work in and through those around us. Now, as I was thinking about this this week, I thought about another book that this guy Luke wrote called Acts, which tells us the story about what the very first, what happened in the very first church, right? What happened after Jesus had gone to be with God and he left a small group of people in a town called Jerusalem and how that small group ended up spreading the good news of what Jesus had done throughout the entire known world. And as we look back in that book, I can only think of one or two examples where we see people going out by themselves. The rest is people going out with others to make this message known wherever they were taken. Now, Jesus was on a clear mission when he was here on earth. Later on in the book of Luke, we see Jesus go into this town called Jericho, which is probably one of the towns that he sent a pair of these 72 to. And whenever he got there, he met a guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a notorious sinner. He was a guy that, that not just the, the religious insiders didn't like, but the people that were like respectable citizens of the country, they didn't like him either because he was a traitor. And yet when Jesus came into this town, this guy decided to respond to him. He decided, hey, I'll get rid of everything. Whatever I've got to do, I want to follow Jesus. Now, whenever Jesus sees this happen, Jesus gives us a picture into what his mission was. And here's what we see in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. It says, for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost And in our passage today, we see that this Jesus who came to seek and save the lost now sends those that he sought after. He sends those that he has saved into the world on this mission that he has. We join him in this mission. 
Crossroads, I don't want us to miss this. Because I believe that God is calling us as a church, each and every one of us that call us Jesus followers, that call ourselves part of Crossroads, I think he's calling us to a higher level of engagement in this mission to seek and save the lost in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, and wherever it is that God takes us. He's calling us to a higher level of making his name famous wherever we go. Now in verses two through uh, 10 or 11, Jesus goes on to kind of give his followers a little bit more of instruction about what to expect as they are on this mission. Here's what Jesus tells them in verse two. He says, he told them the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, as we look at that verse, I think we can all resonate a little bit with what Jesus was saying there. The harvest is abundant. There's a ton of work to do, but there are not enough hands around to do it. Even if we're not thinking about ministry and we're just thinking about things around the house, right? We have that picture of there's so much work to do around here, but there's not enough hands to do it. If you're in the workplace, there are times where you look around and you're like, there's so much work to do, but there's not enough hands to do it. And as Jesus looked at the world, and as we even look at the tri-state area around us, we can say, there's so much work to do, but there's not enough people to do it. I love what Jesus does here because he says, hey, this mission is big. This mission is urgent. This, this idea is huge that I'm calling you to. So pray. I love this picture because it reminds us of the power that is to be found in prayer. See, we don't just pray about the work, but as Hudson Taylor says, we have to see that prayer is the work. That prayer is the work that God calls us to, to accomplish this mission. When we see just how big this mission is and we begin to sense that feeling of being overwhelmed, we pray and we remember that the Lord of the harvest is good. We remember that he's better at being Lord of the harvest than we are. There's a really well-known devotional by a guy named Oswald Chambers called My Utmost for His Highest. And in one of the entries, he starts it off by writing this. He says, prayer does not equip us for greater works. Prayer is the greater work. If we see the mission that is to be done, not just in our tri-state area, but around the world, we have to remember the power of prayer to accomplish this. So if you're here today and maybe you have a loved one, maybe it's a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend who you've been praying for for a long time. You've been praying that God would change their hearts, that God would change their minds, that he would ultimately reveal himself to them. I want to encourage you, keep praying that. But I also want to encourage you to press into Jesus's prayer here to say this harvest is abundant and the workers are few. So God, I pray right now that you would raise someone up to go into my loved one's path. I pray that you would raise up a coworker. I pray that you would raise up a teacher, that you would raise up a classmate that might be able to say something that I can't say and press into the power of prayer. It may be that God raises up someone else who can ultimately reap that harvest that you've been working on for a long time. Now, immediately after this charge to pray, Jesus goes on to tell his followers something that I don't think was all that encouraging, all right? Here's what Jesus says in verse three. He says, now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now I can just imagine how these 72 responded to this. Jesus, you're sending us out like what among what? 
Did, did you get that backwards? Did you mean to say that you're sending us out as wolves among sheep and we're gonna like devour this world for you? Because that's a lot more encouraging, right? Whenever I know that I'm in a position of authority and superiority and I can press forward and there's not gonna be anything that holds me back, but that's not what Jesus says, right? He says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. You know, there was a time in our culture where Christianity was kind of assumed. It was the majority view. So even if someone didn't necessarily believe everything, they still respected the church. They still respected the Bible. And and I think we got really used to that. But we no longer live in that world. This Western world is what uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls a, a secular age. And whenever he talks about a secular age, he's not so much saying that, that, that there are so many people that don't believe in God. But what he's saying is, is that now we live in a world where not believing in God is seen as a viable option, which is different than the past. Right now we live in a world where, where we see that, that the only truth that, that we see about belief is that there are so many different options and, and people can just choose their own way, Right. So we live in this world, and one of the things that I think that we see is that a lot of times the church really struggles with what it looks like to live in this world. A lot of times, rather than living as lambs among wolves, we think it's our calling to live as wolves among wolves. What do I mean by that? I mean that a lot of times we see that it's our job to puff out our chest and lash out at people anytime they push against us or our beliefs. We believe that it's our job to defend. It's our job to go on the aggressive constantly, no matter what happens in the world around us. We've got to make sure that people see that we are right. And I think that when we do this, even though it's well-intentioned, a lot of times we forget that a lamb's only hope in the face of a wolf is that he has a really good shepherd. And as we go on mission in this world, our only hope that we have a really good shepherd. It's not up to us to defend ourselves, to be the one who is the aggressor, but it's up to us to recognize that the one who's there protecting us is good. And that gives us the ability to ultimately press forward. Now in our remaining time today, what I want to do is answer this question. How can we boldly pursue this mission that Jesus calls us to as lambs among wolves? What does this look like for us today? What, is, what are the things that we have to ultimately place our confidence in? The first thing I think that we must do if, if we are to live as lambs among wolves is this. We have to trust that God is where we're going. You have to trust that God is where you're going, that God has indeed gone before you. Now, I think that this mission that Jesus sent these 72 on was a special circumstance, but I think there are principles that we can draw out of this that apply to our lives as well. We see here that Jesus told them, hey, don't worry about taking your money back. Don't worry about taking extra clothing. Don't worry about making sure you have everything in line, but trust that God is going to be the one who provides for you. Trust that God is going before you and that he will be able to prepare what is ahead of you. Make sure that that you know that that it's not up to you to make things happen, but it's up to you to ultimately just find where God is already at work. In verse five, Jesus tells them, hey, whenever you go into a new town, go up and, and when you find a household, say peace to this household. Now, what I don't think that is, is a charge to us to walk around our neighborhoods in this area or through our dorms in college. And anytime we see someone walk up to them and say, peace be with your household. 
All right? Because I don't know about you, but in my neighborhood, that would be a little weird. All right? And I don't think that that's what Jesus is getting across here. But what I do think he's doing is giving us a principle that we can apply now. One of our former pastors here and a current member here, Pat Creech, moved into a new neighborhood a couple of years ago. And as he talked about that and an idea that I think relates here, he's talked about the five most powerful words he learned to use in his new neighborhood. And they were this, hi, what is your name? He said by doing that, it opens up the opportunity to engage in a relationship with someone. It opens up the opportunity to see how God is at work and it also gives that person an out, right? They can say, hey, my name is so-and-so, and maybe they don't even ask for your name and they just walk away, and that's okay. But it may also be that engagement piece where they start pouring something out to you that catches you off guard, and it's because God has gone before you and God has already started preparing the way for you. If you trust that God is already at work going before you, it changes the way you live in your neighborhood, in your workplace. It changes the way you live in your schools. It changes the way you live wherever you go. Here's what Jesus goes on to say in verse six. He says, if a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. I think this is a call for us to ultimately live out our faith and ultimately try to find a way to actually speak about what God is doing in our lives to others and just see if there is an open door there. This means that we don't have to push on someone who's pushing back when we reference God. We don't have to be surprised when someone shuts us down and we don't have to attack them when we do. But we trust that if God does open a door, we can press forward boldly, not worrying about what is going to happen. Now, what does this look like for you? Maybe for you, this means that as someone comes to you and asks how you are doing, if someone comes to you and asks what's been going on in your life, if things have been hard, maybe you can take that time to actually offer a testimony to how God has been faithful in this season. And it gives that person the opportunity to say, well, good for you and move on. Or maybe it opens up the door for you to see how God has gone before you. Maybe for you, this means that as someone is sharing something with you about something that's causing them pain, whether it's mentally, physically, or emotionally, you can ask the question, can I pray with you? It gives them the open door to say no, but it also opens up the door for you to see how God has gone before you. And if this is an opportunity for you to press in and introduce them to the good news of what God has done for them. When we trust that God has gone before us, it changes the way we live. And I think it can change our world if we go out with that assumption. Now, a second thing I think we have to do if we are going to live as lambs among wolves is this. We have to treasure the message. We have to treasure the good news that we carry. Now, I don't think many of us would say this out loud, but I think if we were honest, a lot of times we struggle to believe that, that the good news that we carry really is good news. A lot of times we struggle to believe that it's good enough for us to share with those around us. A lot of times we have a hard time treasuring it enough to see that it's worth putting our necks out in order to share but if the good news of the gospel is true and the coming of God's kingdom is real, then we must be a people that carry that wherever we go. We have to hold it tight enough and valuable enough to change the way we live. I love how Jesus goes on to kind of unpack this message here in verses eight and nine. Here's what he tells his followers. He says, when you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things they set before you. 
Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. By holding firmly to the fact that God goes before us, by holding firmly to the fact that that this message we carry really is good news, it gives us boldness to do things like pray for God to actually heal people here and now. It gives us boldness to share the good news about what he's doing in our lives. It gives us boldness to stick our necks out because God is still at work today like he was 2,000 years ago. Now, the treasuring this message also means that we're willing to share it even if people aren't going to receive it well. Here's what Jesus goes on to say in verses 10 and 11. He says, when you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. Now, again, I think that this was probably something special for this mission that these people were sent on. I don't think that Jesus' charge for you is to go into the workplace and if someone pushes back on your faith, you walk outside the door and say, I'm wiping off the dust from my feet before you because it's not worth it. I don't think that that's the charge from Jesus here. But I think that there's a principle here that we can apply that can transform how we live in the world. I think the principle here is that whenever we trust that God has gone before us, when we are rejected, we don't take that personally, but we merely recognize the fact that it's not up to us to change hearts and change minds, that God is the one who is in the business of opening hearts and minds. So when we're rejected, it means that we are actually able to just move on to the next person and trust that maybe it's just not the right time. Maybe we're not the right person. And we can go ahead and move on without responding in anger to that person, without responding, lashing out because we take that personally instead of just recognizing the fact that that God is the one who does this. Now, handling this rejection ultimately leads us to our third thing that we must do if we are going to live as lambs among wolves. And it's this, you have to know where your identity is found. Jesus makes it clear that his disciples can expect rejection. They can expect expect dismissal of both them and the message that they carry. But in the midst of this, Jesus also tells his disciples that that's okay. Here's what Jesus tells him in in verse 16 after he has told his disciples, hey, those who see these signs and and don't respond, it'll be worse for them on judgment day than they can imagine. But here's what Jesus goes on to say in verse 16 about how they can carry forward. He says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Now, whenever I see this, I'm reminded that that we can stand firm in our identity because Jesus so identifies with us that when we're carrying his name, if someone rejects that, it's not about us anyways, right? So we can stand firm in our identity knowing that that doesn't knock us Ultimately, we're still representing Jesus. But I don't think we need to stand firm in this just for our failures. We also need it for success. As his disciples came back, we see this in verse 17. They went out boldly and and here is what we see. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. 
I see these guys coming back and this is where my imagination kicks in and you guys just roll your eyes at me. But I see these guys coming in and they're like coming up with their own like wrestling names, all right? They come back like WWE style. They're like, I'm the one and only original Undertaker, all right? One dude has called himself the Big Show. You got another guy that's called himself Stone Cold Demon Slayer. You got another guy who's, I I, I could go on and on. So I'm just gonna stop now because I'll go down a path where I can't recover from. But these guys come back and they are pumped about what's going on in and through what they are doing. They're so excited. I think this highlights something that I don't want us to miss and it's the fact that there is immense joy to be found in doing ministry with other people. There's immense joy to be found in participating in this mission that God sends us on. But at the same time, there's also a danger whenever we start to find too much joy there. Here's what Jesus goes on to tell his followers in verses 18 through 20. Verse 18, he, he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I think Jesus is beginning to speak there to what, what was going on in the unseen realm as his disciples were going out and bringing the kingdom. He's saying, hey, as you were proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, as you were healing, I saw a blow being delivered to God's kingdom, or to, sorry, to Satan's kingdom that that was beyond what you could imagine. I saw Satan's kingdom being torn down as you were doing this stuff. He goes on to affirm the authority. He says, look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions, which throughout scripture is a, 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 a reference to the evil that was going on. So I've given you this authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. But check out verse 20. It says, however, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, we don't just need to be firm in our identity for our successes, or for our failures. We also need it for our successes. Because we all too often find that this, this mission that God has called us to, that it's good to pursue. And so we go out and pursue it, but then we just start finding our identity. And whenever we are successful, whenever we're not successful, we take that as a major blow. But I think that what Jesus is trying to communicate to us here is that while being secure in this mission drives us to mission, our accomplishments don't give us our security. It's what God has already said. My son Abe is at a really fun age right now. He's going to be two in March. So he's at that point now where he's like picking up new words every day. So that's fun. And he's also at a point now where he loves to help us with whatever we're doing. Now, this means that in the morning, if I leave my coffee cup on the end table, he likes to go over there and grab my hot coffee and bring it to me. We're working on that one, realizing that that's not the best idea. All right. Now he just walks up and says, hot, hot, hot. And I'm like, yeah, that, that, that's hot. Don't, don't touch that. He also loves to bring me my phone anytime he finds it and he brings it to me and he goes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, until I say thank you back, which lets me see what I sound like to him whenever I constantly say, say thank you, say thank you, say thank you, right? But one of the things that I love right now is one of his favorite things to do to help us is throw away diapers and put away laundry. Now, putting away laundry ends up being a bigger mess than anything because he puts the clean clothes and the dirty clothes, the dirty clothes and the clean clothes, and it's just kind of a mess, but it's so fun because he comes back with so much joy. But whenever he throws away his diapers, it's awesome because what he does is we'll change his diaper, he'll grab it, he'll tuck it under his arm, he goes, he opens up the bathroom door, he'll go throw it in the trash can, and he comes back and he's got the biggest grin on his face. And he starts clapping, he goes, yay! And we affirm that because we love seeing him find joy in helping. 
Now, as my son continues to grow, I'll continue to give him more authority and responsibility, even though the authority to open up the bathroom door on his own and throw away the diaper is a pretty big deal now. There's going to come a day where I tell Abe, hey, you're going to go mow the grass and you cannot cut your foot off because if you do, your mom will kill me, okay? And that's going to be some authority and responsibility. There's going to be a day whenever I give Abe keys to a car and say, okay, son, it's up to you now. I've taught you what I can, but you've got to go out and be responsible with this now. There's going to come a day where I expect my son to use what God has given him to, to get a real job, right? And stop living in my house. But if after 20 or 25 years from now, my son comes back to me and he's hanging out with his friends and the only thing I do is hear him talking about how much joy is found in in responsibly handling the authority and responsibility that I've given him. If his only joy is in how well he's done not getting into any wrecks, fingers crossed. If his only joy is found in, in how well he's doing at his workplace. If his only joy is found in how proud he makes me by his accomplishments, I'm going to consider myself a failure because that, that means I haven't loved him the way that God has loved me. If he thinks that his love from me is dependent upon his ability to impress me, it means I missed it. I think that that's what God wants us to see at the end of this message. Because he wants us to see that regardless of what is going on, no matter how great the things we're doing, no matter how much we're failing, he loves us not because we're so great, but because he's already written our names in the book of life. Their joy is not to be found in how great we are, but in how great he is and what he's already done for us. Like I said at the beginning of this message, I think that God is calling us to do some incredible things over this next year. I think that we are going to see more and more of you seated here joining us online and at our West Campus in our baptistries with your friends, baptizing them into Christ. And we are going to celebrate with you. And that's going to mean that I'm not in there and you are. And that's something to celebrate I think as we go throughout this year, we're going to see our church continue to be generous to to ultimately fund ministries here in this area and around the world. And that's something to celebrate. But if at the end of this year, we look back and all we can do is celebrate all the great things that we've been able to do with what God has given us, but we've completely forgotten what God did for us, we failed. As we pursue this mission, as we go out boldly, trusting that God is where we're going, as we treasure this message, and and so we actually share wherever we go. If we do both of those things, but we forget where our identity lays, we failed. So church, as we launch into this ministry year, as we launch into this mission that God has called us to, don't forget where your identity lies. Step out boldly, treasure the message, but remember that your identity is secure because of what Christ has done, not because of how great you are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this message and this reminder, God, that ultimately our identity is secure because of what you've done. God, I thank you that you go before us and I'm so excited to see how you use us this year. God, will you give us eyes to see where you are already at work to make your name famous? God, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.